Well, good morning again. again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. And this morning we are starting a new series in the book of Ruth. We're continuing our series of strong Old Testament women. And like I said, this morning we're going to start Ruth. We'll be in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10. There's also the Sycamore Children's Version is there as well. We'll be referring to both of those throughout um, the sermon, so you'll want to have that handy there or have your own Bibles open or your smartphones open to the app uh, for the ESV. And if you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> this is God's Word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly fathers, we come before your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would once again come to us, condescend to us by your spirit to open this text up to us and us to it. Lord, would you give us your truth for our growth, for our transformation. Would you help us, Lord, to see your great grace, our great need and the great Savior, even your Son, Jesus, who meets our need. Lord, we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so I turned 16 and got my driver's license in the state of Tennessee. In the state of Tennessee, it is always illegal to make a U-turn unless it's posted that you can, which is the opposite of most states. I know that's how they get you. If you ever visit Tennessee, just remember that. They're going to get you for that one. And we're going to see here in the book of Ruth that it's actually the opposite. We're going to see that U-turns are allowed. In fact, that's the name of our whole series for the book of Ruth is that U-turns are allowed, that God brings grace to turn things around even when it's our fault, even when we did it on purpose, even when it's our own foolishness, God brings grace to turn things around. U-turns are allowed in his grace. Now, Ruth is a historical book, so really quickly, very quickly, as we go through Old Testament historical books, the best way for us to relate to them, the best way for us to understand our place in them is to recognize that God is in a special covenantal relationship with his people, Israel. And so the best way for us to understand that is for us to think about how God has this relationship with the church. So the book of Ruth, historical books in general, they're really about God talking to those who are already in a relationship with him. So this is a book that's kind of really focused on discipleship, on those of us who are already in a committed relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ, on how he 
gently critiques us and how he gently helps us pursue deeper discipleship with him. Now that does not mean if you're listening with us today or you're here today and you do not know Jesus, like I got nothing to say to you. It's not what that's about. But the primary audience is going to be God talking to his people. And so if you would say, I don't know if I'm one of those people, that's okay. It's good for you to sit back and watch as a caring Lord critiques and tweaks and gives his people grace. And you can see that that grace is also available to you. The context tells us in verse 1, it starts out, it says that it's when the judges ruled. We, we told the kids in their version, we said this, boys and girls, if you want to look at your version, here's when this book takes place. It says, in the dark times after entering the promised land. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, they, they, they get out of Egypt, they get to the promised land, they go through the book of Joshua, they sort of conquer the land, but not really, and then the book of Judges takes place, and there's just chaos. And the book of Judges ends with that famous saying that everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's not a good time. It ends with God sending what is called covenant curses to bring his people back to repentance. Again, quick word about judgment. In the Old Testament, God is in a special relationship with his people Israel. They were given a mission. He chose them out of all the nations of the earth, and he says, not because you were the best, it's actually because you were the worst, and it shows my power more to use you guys, and I'm going to bless you, and you guys are going to be a blessing to the whole world. But because of that special relationship, they had those blessings, but they also had obligations. And when they didn't meet those obligations, God brought curses to bring them back to repentance. That is not the case today. Jesus has come in Christian theology in the biblical picture of things as the newer, truer Israel. He fulfilled everywhere they failed. And so he absorbed all of those covenant punishments upon himself at the cross. So we don't get to assume this side of the cross. Ah, bad things are happening to them or me. I must be under God's judgment. That may be the case, but the Bible doesn't give us the ability to say it absolutely is the case because Jesus has fulfilled that covenant. And God doesn't always relate to people in this way one-on-one relationship. That's important for us to remember that Jesus has fulfilled all those things. And so when we see judgment happening in the Old Testament, we don't automatically get to assume, oh, that's what's happening here today. We don't know that. And that gets us to our theme for today, talking about judgment and God's punishment and repentance and all this stuff. But the theme is always God's grace. And the theme is this, God's grace is bigger than our failures. Okay, so God is in a relationship with his people. Those of us who've been around church a while, we've heard the church in the New Testament referred to as the bride of Christ. But in the Old Testament as well, God claimed to be in a marriage with his people. There are several places where he says, Israel is my wife by covenant. And so like a marriage, there's a relationship there. And we're going to see in the first couple of verses, there's a man of Israel who decides, you know, I I think I want to take a break from this relationship. And we see that in verses one and two. All of a sudden he's like, you know what? I want to try a break here for a little bit. Verse one tells us there's a famine in the land. Now to an Old Testament mind, famine is judgment. When you see famine, you're supposed to repent. It's, It's like the check engine light just came on. Something's wrong. And it's ironical because Bethlehem, 
means literally house of bread. Beit is the word house, lechem is the word bread. So you put those together, you have the house of bread. And all of a sudden we have here the bread basket of Israel has no bread. See, God is pressing into his family. He's making life difficult on them because just like you, he hates hypocrisy. And so this relationship is gonna be real. He wants them not to play act with him. So he's pressing in to bring them to repentance. And this guy in verse one from Bethlehem responds, God, um, you're, you're just a bit extra right now. So I'm gonna take a break for a little while. Just a little break, it's not permanent. I'm just gonna go sojourn somewhere else. It's a temporary thing, which is exactly what we Christians do. We don't abandon Jesus when faithfulness is hard. At least that's what we tell ourselves, right? Martin Luther said, you know, you never break commandments two through 10 without first breaking commandment one, you will have no other gods before me. Because ultimately what you're doing when you look at commandments two through 10, you're like, yeah, but I wanna do that one. You're saying, I'm gonna step outside of the relationship with this God who says I can't, and I'm gonna worship a God who says I can. You never break those other commands without first breaking this one. And that's what this guy here really does. He's like, you know, I'm just gonna take a break from you for a bit. I'm gonna take a break where in Moab they have food. I'm gonna go over there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be with the God who lets me do what I think I really want to do. Well, what does it look like for us to, to sojourn in a foreign land? I mean, you know, as Christians in America, this is the land of our sojourn. It's not our home. It's not supposed to define us. It's not supposed to capture our heart. But it does, doesn't it? I'm reminded of that Rich Mullins song called The Land of My Sojourn. He has this beautiful couplet in there. He says, no one tells you when you get born here how much you're gonna love it and how you'll never belong here. And he goes on to say, so I'll call you my country, but I'll be longing for my home. And then looking at America, he goes, and I wish that I could take you there with me. It's just a beautiful, it captures this give and take desire of what it means to be a Christian in America. So Elimelech is in a very similar situation. His name literally in, in Hebrew means my God is king. And when life got hard, we see that was not true. God couldn't be trusted in this famine. God doesn't have the power to feed me. He can't do his covenant obligations. I gotta go find a God who does. So in, in the face of famine, in the, in the face of things God said, when this happens, you're supposed to repent. This happened, no, God's not to be trusted. So he bails. He doesn't repent, he leaves. And even worse, he goes to Moab. Now, Moab, okay, not the cool place in Utah. This is a different country, about 50 miles east of Israel across the Dead Sea. And every culture has its no-nos, right? I'm looking around at the age of some of you here. Maybe you can remember, right, certain rules. You don't pull on Superman's cape, right? You, you don't spit into the wind, right? You don't pull the mask off the O-Long Range, and you don't mess around with Jim, and you do not go to Moab, right? For some of the others of you, you do not talk about Fight Club, and you do not go to Moab, is a bad place. It was a hated place. It was a hating place. It was a historic enemy of Israel. Here's how one British scholar put this. I love how he just goes there. He says, this is not, things were difficult in town A, and so we migrated to town B to find food. No, this is more like things were difficult in our home country, so we immigrated to join the Islamic State in Syria. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, wow, he, he, he went there. So, 
See, Elimelech's actions tell everybody what he really believes. My name says my God is king, and my action says no, he's not. This famine is too big for God. So the grass is greener over the septic tank, so I'm going to Moab. It's a land of human sacrifice. It's a land of crazy sexual norms, a complete disregard for the God of Israel. And verse two tells us they got there and all of that infected them. The text literally says in verse two, they remained there. Literally, we could translate that, they became there. It was supposed to be a temporary stay, but because of exposure, they became Moabites. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're still tracking with me. Let's look at your verse 2, the very end of your verse 2 there. Here's how I put it for you. It says this, says, even though they were part of God's people in Israel, they became like the people of Moab. See, they're comfortable where they shouldn't be. And we Christians do this too, don't we? I mean, in, in kind of an extreme example, life gets tough, we're under stress, and so we start to fantasize with the forbidden as an escape from the hard parts. And suddenly, after a habit of doing that, we can find ourselves actually doing something we never, ever thought was possible because we became there. But maybe it's much more subtle than that. In fact, it is much more subtle than that. And I wonder if this is where you are, especially some of the younger people here. I wonder if you're in a place like this, like, yeah, I've been raised in the church. And yeah, I know the stories. and, 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 And Jesus seems very compelling. But if I'm candid, so much of my interior life, what I really think about things like sex and, and gender and traditional morality, it doesn't actually jive with Scripture. And I'm okay with that because some old book doesn't get to tell me who I am. I get to define me. And, and frankly, what I experience in church do, doesn't feel very adequate to what I'm really feeling in my heart. I appreciate all this church stuff. I'm still here, but, but barely. I really feel that there are more relevant answers out there. That's where a lot of people are in church world. And I'm not judging. Like this family here, I have to admit that there's this pull. There's this pull to take a break. And maybe sometimes you make this break more permanent. Like we see in verses three and five, maybe our little break needs to become, you know what, I'm I'm gonna live single for a while. I'm gonna do a trial separation. We don't know how long, but sometime after they became Moabites in their hearts, Elimelech died. Naomi should have returned home at this point. She had every opportunity to return home at this point, but she did not. She was still pursuing a life outside of a covenantal relationship with God. Perhaps she's angry at God at this point at the death of her husband. She lets her boys marry Moabite women. And, and the text here wants us to see this is not right. This is not normal. This is not the usual word for marriage found throughout the Old Testament. It's actually the word more closely um, akin to abducting or kidnapping. In fact, in later Hebrew usage, referring to a marriage this way was a way of saying it was an illegitimate marriage, not a real marriage. They weren't supposed to marry Moabites. 
Now, it's not racism. It's not tribalism. Again, the Old Testament people were set apart by God for his special purposes. He said, I'm going to accomplish blessing for the whole world through you, and so I'm going to give you special blessings, but also special obligations, and one of those was not to marry outside of the covenant people. And here we see that this family is Israelite in name only, living single, acting like they aren't in a relationship with God at all. And many of us in church world, we do this too, don't we? I mean, we attend, we participate, we may even financially support occasionally, but there's no real difference in our lives. At the end of the day, when life presses in, we're just as petty, just as stressed, and just as scared as our neighbors who do not know Jesus. You know, the early American pastor, theologian, philosopher, Jonathan Edwards said, he, you know, what we call that is nominal Christianity. And Jonathan Edwards said that a nominal Christian is one who finds Jesus useful, but doesn't really find Jesus beautiful. Jesus provides morality, right? He provides family values. He provides a community of like-minded people. And should those benefits start to diminish, so too does our Christianity. You know, and recently it's been in the news that church membership is, is at historic lows, like for the first time ever. I think since Gallup started taking numbers in 1937, I believe, that church membership has fallen below 50% of the population. And I believe that. I really do. Because, I mean, churches... Ha- are filled with people who find Jesus rather useful, but they don't particularly find Jesus beautiful. And in our changing culture, Jesus isn't particularly useful anymore, right? You don't get the social capital you used to get by having your Jesus badge on and and letting people know you go to church. And, And so more and more churched people are opting for life without Jesus. They're, they're sojourning in a different land. And again, I'm not judging. I get it. I get it. I mean, Christianity is objectively true. It can be demonstrated and it can be defended. And I can do that if you want to get coffee, if you need me to, to, say, to tell you those things. But even as I say that, I'm just going to cards on the table. There are times when inside I'm not feeling it. And I know that happens to you too. I know it does. Especially in a culture that tells us that what truth and authenticity mean conforming to your innermost desires and feelings. What do you do when you're not feeling it and your culture says, well, this is what truth is? See, and we mess that up because our culture comes and tells us that, but it says, find your innermost desires and fulfill those, but I don't really know what my innermost desires are. And yet, just like you, I feel this pressure to live my truth, right, and be authentic, to achieve my dreams, but I can't identify them, much less achieve them, and so I just end up under this pressure, this stress, this heavy burden. I bet I'm not alone. See, trying to live single outside the Creator is hard. Trying to find Jesus merely useful doesn't work. See, but Jesus himself, when he introduces himself to us, so to speak, when he himself talks about himself in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he reveals himself, he says, I am gentle and lowly. His default posture is not pointing a finger of judgment saying, do better. His default posture is arms open, ready to embrace it. I am gentle and lowly. Come. 
See, instead of placing a heavy burden on us to accomplish your dreams, live your truth, be authentic, Jesus promises, come to me in your burdens and I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. See, the Bible doesn't present Jesus as useful. The Bible presents Jesus. Jesus himself in the Bible presents himself as beautiful, as the object of our heart's desire, as the one who will give us our deepest, deepest longings. And Naomi is starting to learn that lesson. Maybe not about Jesus specifically, but about the nature of this covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. She's starting to learn that there's more there than she initially thought. Let's all look together at the kids' verse, the very end of verse 4 and all of verse 5. The kids' version says this. Says, After 10 years, the boys died, leaving Naomi the only survivor from Israel. Now, the most natural reading of the text at this point is they were married for 10 years, then they died. 10 years with no kids was actually grounds for divorce at that time. They're looking at this from Naomi's perspective. Life has completely failed. No husband, no grandkids, no sons. What was supposed to become a shortcut had become a dead end, literally, as the bottom falls out of Naomi's life. In fact, in verse 5 in the Hebrew, it literally, she's lost everything, including even her name. It just says the woman in verse 5. I won't even give her a name. She's brought so low. She has nothing left. Now, I just don't know that in this age of the social net that we have, you know, even with all the problems, we still have a pretty good social net. So with, with welfare and social security and women with ch- children and all the other things we have, if I can really help you understand how much an original reader would read this as an utter catastrophe. No husband, no sons, no grandsons, just three women on their own. Utter catastrophe something that kind of comes close. Remember about 10 years ago, that great PBS show, Downton Abbey? Remember the first season, what the whole setup was? The heir, the son to this estate, to this lordship, dies on the Titanic. And British law says it cannot go to an, an unwed daughter. It has to go to a male heir. You've got to find an heir or it goes to someone else. You lose everything. And so the whole first season is this family, like basically, you know, dad, you can't go anywhere because if you die, we lose everything. And they're trying to figure out how can we get an heir? How can we handle this? This stupid law won't let us keep our life. What do we do? That, I mean, that's just a tiny little smidgen of what it would be like in this time for them to be completely bereft of any man in their life in this ancient Near East patriarchal culture. I mean, in Naomi's world, the value of women was seen as their ability to continue the family line, especially with sons. So Naomi's old. Ruth and Orpah have been barren for 10 years. Nobody's going to touch them. They're undesirable. In that culture, they would be seen as, if if you let me be candid, worthless human debris taking up resources. See, there's this, to an original reader, there's this sinking hopelessness at the end of verse five. What are they gonna do? Only something supernatural can help at this point. But remember, God's grace is bigger than our failures. And so starting in verse six, Naomi takes a desperate step of getting back to her land, back to her people, and back to her God. So she, she says, maybe let's take a little break. She's tried living single, and it's like, you know what, in verse six, like, please take me back. Let's look together at verse six. That's what it says. It says, 
And she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, there's more than a road trip here. Something is happening in her heart. Verse 6, it says the Lord has visited. That's not like when you and I decide to go visit someone over the weekend or over a holiday. When God visits, it means God is present. God is working for good. God is active. God's doing something amazing. And Naomi hears about it in Moab. God's doing something great over there back home. And what does she do? The text says that she returned from the country of Moab. I want to teach you a Hebrew word real quick, okay? Think of the word shoe and put a V on the end of it, okay? Shuv, not shove, but shuv, okay? This is class participation time. Say that with me, shuv. Very good, okay? This word is a verb. It means to turn. It means to return, but most often its biggest usage in the Old Testament is to repent, an original reader would not have read this geography. Oh, she's returning. They would have read it spiritually. She is repenting from Moab. She sees God is moving again. She sees his grace. And so she stands up and she repents. This is not who I am. This is not where I belong. I'm not a Moabite. I'm going back. That's repentance. It's action empowered by heart change. She heard again of God's grace. And maybe, just maybe, there's a chance of grace for me. And so she grasps onto this thin, fragile wisp of hope. And here's what I love about this. Because my heart defaults to, I want to see her do this. And the scripture's like, no, she doesn't have to. I want to see her own her mistake. I want to see, like, I shouldn't have left. I shouldn't have stayed. I, should, I want her to list her failures, make sure she really f- understands her sin, and then she gets to repent, right? That's what I want to see, and I love that God's like, no, you don't even know your sins half the time. What, I can't make you do that. I'd never forgive anybody. God, she says, this is not right. I've messed up so much, I can't even list it, but I repent. I'm moving somewhere else. I'm going back to what I know. That's biblical repentance. Oh, let's make sure we never put a burden on people. When Jesus says, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest for my burden is easy, my yoke is light. Let's make sure we say, yeah, but you need to make sure you own your sin first. Jesus doesn't require that. Mean Old Testament God here in verse six doesn't require that. Let's make sure we don't require that either. Let's look together at the kids, verse six. Okay, the very bottom here on page 10, everybody, let's look at verse six here. Here's how I put it for the kids. When she heard that God was again blessing Bethlehem with food, Naomi repented from Moab, taking Ruth and Orpah with her. See, here's grace to turn around. It's never too late. It may have been an act of sin to go to Moab. It may have been unwise to remain there after her husband died. She has been foolish. She has sinned, but she remembers who she is. God, and she remembers who God has revealed himself to be. And in one small act of repentance, a whole process of restoration begins. Now, man, if you look at yourself and you think, man, I've blown it. I'm so far gone. I can't go back. There's no way that God can accept me. You're not alone. We've all felt that. Never underestimate God's grace for you to turn around. Because God allows U-turns. 
And we're going to see here in Naomi's life that this catastrophe, this complete disintegration and fracturing of her life will be overcome by this radical love from God who calls his wayward daughter back to him. Now, dear Christian, have you let yourself ever so gradually get to a place you don't want to be but you don't know how to get out? Are you living in what the Bible calls shalom? Not just peace, but this peaceful wholesomeness that God promises? Or is your life a hot mess? Are you exhausted from a culture that offers you the freedom to be who you will be, but then demands that you go be that person? And then we're part of an economic story that says what? You sink or swim by your own efforts. And so if you kind of just have this contentment where you just tread water, you feel like a failure, don't you? See, there's no rest in our system. Oh, dear Christian, if you've given yourself over to that, maybe after a year of Zoom work, you don't know when not to be at work anymore. Your devotional life has suffered. Your work balance life has suffered. God allows you turns. It's never too late and never think it is. I love, there's one of my favorite short stories is by Ernest Hemingway. It's called The Capital of the World. And inside of that story, he has a short little vignette where this father, it's set in Spain, this father and a young adult son named Paco have a big fight, big falling out, and Paco leaves. And the father is afraid that Paco's gonna do what a lot of young men do. They get into bullfighting, which is basically like suicide. The, the death rate is so high, and he's so afraid his son's gonna do something like that. He's like, you know what? This argument is not worth his life. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I forgive him because, you know, forgiveness is, is a choice. Like, it's an action, like breathing. He says, I choose. I'm going to forgive him. So let it go. So he takes out this full-page ad. It says, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the Hotel Madrid, noon Tuesday, Papa. And the next day, 800 men named Paco show up, longing just to get a morsel of grace and forgiveness from their father. It's a beautiful, beautiful capturing of our desire for grace. Maybe verse six here in Ruth has been that for you. You see, she stands up and she repents and goes back, taking all of her junk with her, all of her problems are not solved. She's like, I don't know how to fix this, but I know there's grace there. I'm going there. There's grace to turn around for you too. I mean, we cannot help but read this story as Christians through the lens of the New Testament. And Bethlehem is a, is a very familiar place, isn't it? I mean, whether you call yourself a Christian and, or, but admit that it's been a stale thing for a while, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian at all, see that from the house of bread, God has visited his people. And it actually says in the text, not that he has given food, but he has given bread. And so too, we see in the New Testament that God comes to Bethlehem and he visits his people and he gives them the bread from heaven, even Jesus himself. Our Lord Jesus, in describing himself, called himself the bread who comes down from heaven and gives life to all. Jesus is the bread from heaven, the bread from Bethlehem, the proof that God has visited his people. You can be part of those people. Are you struggling to make life work? Hear the truth from Ruth. God has visited and provided for his people. 
We can repent because God showed us grace in giving Jesus, born in Bethlehem, to be the rescuer of his wayward, foolish people. Oh, do not hear me saying that Naomi's repentance somehow earned God's favor. No, God's grace called his daughter back home to him before she changed her life. His grace is always the first and last word, not our efforts, not our sorrow. Is your life where you want it to be? Have those things to which you've given yourself completely, career, relationship, wealth, popularity, family, have they fulfilled you and given you joy like they promised you? Or do you see that they own you, that they're a burden on you and they demand you perform for them? Hear the good news. God's grace is available. The ultimate lesson from the book of Ruth, it's about Jesus' work. Naomi and her family abandoned God's land to live in exile, hoping to build their own kingdom, only to see it crash down into shambles. Whereas Jesus voluntarily left the glories of his father's kingdom, living in exile to come and pick up the broken pieces of our lives and put them back together in his grace giving you what the Bible calls shalom, wholesomeness, peace. You can be free from the guilt and have peace. Even now, you can have a future, you can have a family, you can have a community through faith in Jesus. Even now, repent of trying to build your life on the things you do. And instead, turn to Jesus in faith and trust. Never underestimate God's grace to turn around because he allows U-turns. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, the message of your grace is sobering. It's scary. Lord, there's a part of our hearts that says, no, it can't be true. We've got to be sorry first. We've got to own our mistakes but your grace can be taken advantage of, Lord, because it's grace. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Those of us who know you, those of us who've been in a relationship with you for a long time, would you help us to see again the beautiful, unending depths of your mercy that you've given us in Christ Jesus. That you are a God of grace who pours and pours out forgiveness on your wayward, foolish people. And Father, I pray that you would give us repentance, that we would turn to you and drink up your forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray for those here today who do not know you, Father, as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and portrayed as crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to yourself. Would you do your work and build your kingdom even now? Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.